done a couple hundred podcasts for six, seven years, whatever it's been. And you are the first to join us for a third time. So really appreciate that. And uh, as I said before, you know, with a Saturday Night Live, if you've hosted five times, you get a jacket. So, you know, we'll have to think we bring you two more times. We'll, we'll, we'll have to get you something. So thanks so much for sharing what what I've always thought is not just an important tool for prosecutors and law enforcement, but one that's not as noticeable necessarily to our community as it should be. So, and that's asset forfeiture. And I should say as a, as a plug, uh, Steph has a uh, organization he runs in LLC, Asset Forfeiture Law, and he provides uh, newsletters that you can subscribe to, pretty valuable in both in terms of training and understanding what's going on. So uh, thanks again for, for joining me today. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to know that I'm now uh, halfway, uh, more than halfway, on the way to winning the uh, the jacket. Uh, so, uh, I'm happy to talk about all of this, and uh, just let me know uh, what's interesting today. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things, and you were also kind enough to speak to my graduate class uh, last month uh, about the topic of asset forfeiture. You've already explained sort of the basics in previous interviews, but one of the things I'm fascinated by is how often you get asked to uh, travel to uh, uh, other foreign jurisdictions to talk about civil and criminal forfeiture and the value proposition. So give us a sense of some of that that you've done in 2023, and I know you'll be picking up some travel as well in 24 and, and also in this, this fall, and what it is that those jurisdictions need, what you're able to provide, and maybe some of the challenges uh, based on um, uh, the lack of the laws or maybe to the training needs. Talk a bit about that, because I think it's important. And then we'll obviously talk about what's going on here in the U.S. Well, sure. Uh, in the past oh, six months or so, I've been to uh, Malta, Latvia, and Estonia. Uh, just last fall, I was in Brazil, Chile, and Portugal. And all of this um, is be uh, for two reasons, because those countries are either money laundering centers where um, foreign criminals from uh, bigger countries uh, decide that this is a place where maybe the um, anti-money laundering uh, supervision isn't as uh, rigorous as it could be, and they come in and they launder their money there, or these countries may be victims of a lot of rampant uh, public corruption, and they're concerned about trying to get uh, their money back. Um, with the countries that are money laundering centers, they're concerned about the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, uh, graylisting them for not having adequate uh, anti-money laundering compliance. Um, and so I go in and uh, I've assisted in drafting money laundering legislation, uh, forfeiture legislation, and also in training their judges and prosecutors. Um, in some of these countries, they have some really tough legal issues. Like on the money laundering side, um, the US model is not the best model. Um, the US model requires not only proof that somebody laundered money, but proof that it is derived from a particular criminal offense. You know, we can't pr prosecute a person for money laundering just saying, well, he was he was laundering criminal proceeds. We have to prove it was drug money. It was fraud money. It was extortion money. Um, if you are in a country like uh, Estonia or Latvia and there's money coming in from the outside and has all the earmarks of being criminal proceeds, it went through shell companies from the British Virgin Islands. It was in third party names. It was in in cash or cryptocurrency, but you don't know from what country it came or who generated the money um, from what crime, then you're stuck if you have the US model. And so they 
have been looking for ways to uh, broaden that. And they um, also are focused on um, the forfeiture in a non-conviction-based setting. You know, the um, everybody has a procedure by which as part of the defendant's sentence, if he's convicted, you can forfeit the proceeds of his crime. But uh, it's often necessary to go after the property if there's no conviction. That's what we call civil forfeiture and what in these other countries they call non-conviction-based forfeiture. And there's a recognition uh, around the world that this is um, something that they, uh, that they need. Um, all the common law countries have non-conviction-based forfeiture, not only the United States, but Canada, Australia, South Africa, whatever. Um, but some of the civil law countries do not. And uh, so they've enacted it in, um, in Latvia and in Malta, and they're learning to use it. And I've been helping them do that. Uh, Estonia and Chile and Brazil were all countries that were um, considering it. Um, I mean, it's, it's necessary as a law enforcement tool because the, the bad guy might be dead, he might be a fugitive, he might have convicted, uh, committed the crime from another country and then brought the money into your country. Uh, we might not even know who the bad guy is, you know, uh, who committed this crime uh, that generated all this money. Uh, or there might be a real long delay in bringing um, the, uh, a bad guy to justice in a criminal case. And so for all those reasons, you don't have a criminal prosecution, you don't have a conviction, you need to use um, non-conviction-based or what we call civil forfeiture to do it. In fact, next week, I'm going to be at Cambridge University and we're putting on a half-day seminar uh, on uh, non-conviction-based forfeiture for the benefit of all these countries that are very interested in it and they want to um, sort of learn uh, how we do it here in the United States and, and when it's uh, how it works. So uh, on the one hand, obviously, it's a deterrence. Um, are the are the jurisdictions do they vary in terms of where the the ass the forfeited assets go? You know, obviously, to general treasuries back to victim. Is it uh, how how is that set up? So when you're asked to come and craft something, how does that discussion go? Is that sort of a yeah. secondary concern, or is that also a major part of why they want the the forfeiture laws uh, created or? Uh, yeah, uh, enhanced. It's almost always it's almost always a two-step process. You first introduce the concept of going after criminal proceeds or facilitating property without getting a conviction. And then there's a lot of discussion of how do you protect um, property rights, how do you ensure due process and and you know how does the concept work because it's foreign to so many of these countries that are not common law countries. After they get past that hurdle, then you get to the second step, which is oh, who manages the assets? Uh, is there a fund? Uh, can we draw upon that fund to defray costs? Uh, can Does that money go back to the victims? Does it go in the general treasury? Um, those are all very important questions that usually occur to them um, on, during the, you know, sort of the follow-up meeting. Um, right, right now, I'm working on uh, amendments to non-conviction-based forfeiture laws enacted in Malta two years ago to add exactly those provisions because they realize we don't have a way of hiring an expert to, to uh, sell the property or uh, managing the storage of the assets. You know, it's um, interesting. One of the areas uh, that you've mentioned before and part of what you're gonna talk about in Cambridge with your panels is how it inter interacts asset forfeiture as a tool for sanctions evasion and certainly what's going on in Russia. Uh, talk talk a bit about that, because what we've obviously talked in the past, uh, both with you and others, about forfeiting uh, 
the assets of oligarchs and how that's been a valuable uh, both deterrent and penalty. But talk about how it's being used specifically regarding what's going on in, in Russia. Sure. Um, there are many, many different uh, applications for a civil forfeiture law. And uh, one of the ones that's very topical right now is in sanctions enforcement. If you have a, a Russian oligarch who is violating the sanctions um, and in doing so by uh, using the U.S. financial system to finance the maintenance of his uh, uh, yacht or his uh, fleet of airplanes, then those uh, assets become subject to forfeiture because they're um, involved in the, the sanctions violation or more technically involved in the money laundering offense that occurs in order to commit the sanctions violation. And uh, that's why we, these cases that you we read about in the newspaper where the, the Justice Department has filed actions uh, against uh, yachts and airplanes and so forth, they're civil forfeiture cases, the seizure of the yacht, the Amadea in Fiji, the seizure of the yacht Tango in, uh, in Spain, in Mallorca. Those were civil forfeiture actions. Why were they civil forfeiture actions? Because there's nobody to prosecute. We don't have the oligarch here, but we do have the uh, the, the ability to grab the assets. And that's that's why uh, they're using that tool there. Yeah, the, um, the other thing that we've talked about, and you also mentioned it when I asked you to in our class uh, this summer, is some of the uh, criticism that uh, has been levied against the use of asset forfeiture. We've all read you know, stories in the press where they talk about an individual or a couple that's, you know, they own a nursery and they got stopped. Uh, and when they got searched, they had cash on hand, but which was ostensibly to buy <laughs> shrubbery and things, but was forfeited. And so it's the the press, you know, based on who brought the brought the case or brought the story makes it seem like it's uh, very prevalent. It's it's unfair. There's no options. There's no ability to appeal. And obviously, I know all of that is not accurate. But talk a bit about the criticism and what we know to be a proposal by some. I think it is bipartisan that they're labeling the FAIR Act and how that could be challenging and problematic to the asset forfeiture infrastructure that's been created in the states. Well, this is one of the great ironies, you know, around the world, as we've just been discussing, John, other countries look to the U.S. as the leader uh, on this issue of bringing non-conviction based forfeiture actions that we've got. Uh, we've got hold of an idea that really works and that's essential for law enforcement as a tool. And these other countries are all uh, trying to um, to enact that legislation and learn how to use it. And at the same time, um, we're getting pushback here in the United States as if uh, uh, there are people who want to eviscerate, if not outright repeal, all of our civil forfeiture laws. This is being led by a group called the Institute for Justice, which is actually a, a front for the uh, Koch brothers. Uh, they fund it. And they, uh, and if you go to their website, they want to repeal civil forfeiture uh, completely. And they, you know, as you said, they everyone argues uh, on this side of the, uh, the issue that there's no due process. So I guess it's probably worth stepping back for a second and looking at what due process actually exists under current law. Uh, we, to seize property, you have to have a warrant in most cases, or you have to have at least probable cause. Um, other than uh, to store the property, the government doesn't touch the property, uh, has no uh, way to control the property uh, while the case is pending. Um, the seizure, in other words, just begins the process, it's not the end of the process. 
there's a short deadline for starting a forfeiture case. You got to bring the action within 60 days. Uh, there's the right to file a hardship petition to release the property if you need it to get to work or get to school. Uh, you have a right to a jury trial. Uh, the government has the burden of proof. It has to prove that a crime occurred and that the property was derived from or used to commit that crime. Uh, you, as the property owner, have the right to suppress any illegally seized evidence. You have a right to raise an innocent owner defense. Uh, forfeitures are limited by the proportionality rules under the Eighth Amendment, excessive fines clause. And if the government loses and you win, you get your attorney's fees paid. So there's all kinds of due process. So you question, well, if there's all kinds of due process, what are these opponents really upset about? What they're upset about is the cops get to keep some of the money. It's called policing for profit. Um, this is all part of the, the movement to defund the police. Um, they you know, don't like the idea that uh, in, a, in a case in which law enforcement participates at the state and local level in a forfeiture action, uh, federal law allows uh, equitable sharing of the proceeds of the forfeiture with the state and local cops. So you have this thing called the FAIR Act, it's H.R. 1525 in the House Judiciary. And um, what they wanna do is raise the burden of proof on the government. It's right now the government has the burden of proof, the same standard that applies in all civil cases, whether it's a tax evasion case or a Pentagon fraud case or whatever, they want to raise it from that standard up to clear and convincing evidence. That's the standard that gets used when you want to commit someone to a mental institution or take children away from their parents. Um, they want to put the, the burden on the government to disprove the innocent owner defense. Uh, they want to eliminate all administrative forfeitures. That is, they want to eliminate the ability of the government to forfeit property that's uncontested. They want all of the tens of thousands of cases that are generated federally every year to have to go to court. Um, they want to eliminate the equitable sharing. That's the defunding issue. They want to abolish the asset forfeiture fund, which is the fund that's used to pay money out of the fund to victims. And effectively, they want to repeal the anti-structuring statute. Um, so the, all of that is aimed at cases that, as you say, John, the media likes to focus on because they involve, you know, some seizure by the local cops. But, um, you know, these are the very same statutes that are used to seize the Russian yachts that we just talked about, to seize terrorist assets, to, right. to stop the flow of money to sanctioned states like North Korea, where the money is being used to fund the nuclear weapons program, or to Iran to fund the uh, Islam Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Uh, this is the money that, this is the process that uh, to forfeit uh, the laundered cryptocurrency uh, in ransomware cases. Um, to uh, stop international fraud schemes from around the world being uh, using those proceeds to invest in the United States and all the kleptocrats, the, the General Abaches, the Lazarenkos, the Obiangs who invest money in the US. All of those are um, civil forfeiture cases. You know, before we came on the air today, John, I went to check just, you know, to give a couple of recent examples, you know, just cases that just came out in the last few months uh, that are this, uh, this kind. In Los Angeles, there's a $104 million civil forfeiture case against money that was allegedly stolen by the, um, embezzled by the defense minister in Kuwait and invested in Beverly Hills real estate. Um, there was a $5.3 million case against a Russian oligarch named uh, Konstantin Malafayev, who invested that money in a, in a Texas bank and then tried to get it out of the Texas bank in violation of the sanctions. There's a $600,000 case involving a global terrorist based in Ghana, whose money was on its way somewhere else and got caught in a corresponding account at a US bank. There's a $154 million case in San Diego involving Bitcoins from a fraud scheme in Japan. 
So, you know, all of those are the, the cases that the federal government's really worried about. This legislation that we're talking about uh, is aimed at the, uh, the, the cop season, the small number of dollars from the motorist. But 80% of those cases are uncontested. Nobody ever, you know, 80% of the time, nobody contests those cases. The 20% that are contested would be affected by this legislation. But the cases that you and I are talking about, the sanctions cases, the, the terrorist financing cases and so forth, um, those are the ones that would are contested and would be affected by you know, raising the burden of proof. If you try to raise the burden of tracing money through a series of shell companies in Eastern European banks, you'd make it impossible to recover that money. If you try to put the, on the burden on the government to disprove you know, the innocent owner defense raised by the wife of some Russian oligarch who claims that she has an ownership interest in his yacht, um, you know, you'd never be able to do those cases. So my bottom line is, you know, I don't think we should be defunding the police. I think there's good reasons for equitable sharing. But if you're going to do that, you don't have to uh, provide relief for the world's kleptocrats and, right. and fraudsters and rogue states and terrorist financiers to do it. And that's what this legislation would do. So uh, the Institute for Justice, I love how these groups name themselves. Um, what are the groups that are opposing the FAIR Act? Or has it been, it's so nascent in terms of the proposal that there hasn't been a lot of conversation? Like I'm assuming the prosecutors, attorneys general, that those sorts of groups you would think would be uh, opposed to these changes. But has there been anything or is it, like I said, a little too early so it hasn't been that active yet? Well, this, um, I think, caught a lot of the uh, pro-law enforcement groups by surprise, but the state and local you know, police, obviously, they have an interest, uh, which is sort of ironic because, um, you know, what I'm saying is that what, what, what the real problem is, is for federal law enforcement. Um, state and local cops, of course, will be opposed because they see uh, this being targeted, that they would be targeted uh, for their uh, for their work. But the... Uh, you know, the, the federal prosecutors are concerned that if they have to bring a civil forfeiture action in court in all of the uncontested cases, I mean, the FBI seizes 4,000 times a year. The DEA seizes 14,000 times a year. The customs people seize 60,000 times a year. Right. And then there's the IRS and the Secret Service and, and DHS and so forth. And if all of those cases have to be filed in court and according to the FAIR Act have to be filed within seven days. I mean, that would place an impossible burden on, on federal law enforcement. So those folks are all concerned about it as well. Well, we want to stay on top of this. I won't get you out of here on this. You had mentioned uh, prior to our conversation today that there's a uh, Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case in the fall, Cully versus Marshall. Tell us a bit about that and your concerns. Well, Cully versus Marshall raises a, a question that's been actually percolating in the courts for uh, over 20 years. The question is whether there is an, a right to an immediate post-seizure probable cause hearing. So, uh, somebody seizes somebody's property uh, under current law today in the federal system. Uh, the government has to commence this process that I just said within a short period of time, and then you have a right to go to court. And, and, and raise your defenses and, and oppose the government's uh, ability to prove what it has to prove under its burden of proof. But the, the question is, if the property is seized before you even get to court, is there a right to a post-seizure hearing on the bona fides of the seizure? What happened in Cully, and it's a state case out of Alabama, not a federal case, um, 
the cops seized a car because um, the kid was driving mom's car and he had drugs and drug paraphernalia in it. And mom didn't like that. And so she has an innocent owner defense under Alabama law, but she didn't want to have to wait to litigate all of that. She wanted an immediate hearing on her, um, on her innocent ownership. And uh, the Alabama court said, no, you don't have a right to an immediate hearing. You have a right to go to court and um, you can raise your innocent owner defense there. She did and she won. But the question was, should she have been given an immediate post-seizure hearing? And um, there have been other state cases where courts have held that there is a right to such a immediate post-seizure hearing. The problem is what's the issue pending in the Supreme Court would not be limited to state cases, but would apply to all the federal cases as well. I don't know how many times a year the cops in Alabama seize a car uh, because it has drugs in it. In New York, they were seizing, uh, cops were seizing cars from drunk drivers. I don't know how often that happens, but compared to the numbers that I just mentioned about the number of seizures that the FBI and the DEA and the customs people do, uh, this would have an enormous impact on federal law enforcement. So, you know, the federal uh, folks take the view and the Justice Department filed an amicus brief. It's an amicus brief because, as I said, this is an Alabama case, but it's an amicus brief that says, hey, you know, if this applied to us, uh, it would have an enormous burden. Um, we think we're already giving due process. There's the short deadlines to commence the case. There's the uh, hardship petition. There's an ex there's an exception under federal law. To the, to the general rule against no probable cause hearing immediately after seizure if you need the money to hire an attorney in your, in your criminal case. So there's all kinds of protections built into federal law, but, a, but an overbroad ruling by the Supreme Court based on you know, this case out of Alabama could result in um, you know, really upending the entire process if the feds had to provide this immediate hearing. Well, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, Steph Casella, Asset Forfeiture Law, uh, excellent publication and all the work you're doing, really appreciate it. And we may come back and grab you for a fourth time after the Supreme Court acts or if the FAIR Act gets any traction. Obviously, there's not a lot of uh, normal things happening in Congress probably this fall, but you'll, we'll see uh, what happens with this. But this, this will certainly wake up uh, some of us in the AML community to understand the uh, potential impact of our law enforcement and prosecutorial partners. So uh, it's always valuable to, to get your insights. So thank you so much. Uh, stay safe, safe travels. And again, we'll talk soon. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. You be well.